this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work again. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of, you know, $500,000 to in debt. $192 million. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host, John Warlow. So once a year, you go to the doctor, right? They take your blood pressure. Maybe they prick your finger and they take a little blood and they give you a sense of your cholesterol level. Maybe if you go to one of those fancy healthcare facilities, they get you to run on a treadmill for a while, see how your heart's doing. You get a checkup. The same thing should be true of your business. When we look at your business through the Value Builder score, we're going to look at it through eight key drivers that acquirers care about. Whether you want to sell your business immediately or in 10, 20 years from now, these are the eight factors that business buyers care about. Knowing them now will help you maximize the value of your business going forward. Just go to valuebuilder.com and take the questionnaire. Hear from a John McInnes from Calgary, Alberta, Canada, who sold a company called Print Audit. Three things that I want you to focus in on in this interview. Number one, his shift from having a high dependency on one customer to having much more customer diversification. Two, his shift in recurring, his towards recurring revenue. Number three, his 80-20 rule. And again, I'll let him explain that. Most people think of 80-20 as 80% of your revenue from 20% of your customers. That's not what it means. He's really talking about focusing the company on retention. Again, John will explain the 80-20 rule. I'd love for you to listen to that. He talks about the strategic value in his company, what the acquirers were buying, how he told his employees and some of his regrets around that, and the feeling what it was like to deliver the checks to the original investors that funded his company in the first place. Here to tell you the entire story is John McInnes. John McInnes, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thank you, John. Good to have you. Tell me about this company, Print Audit. You started this business like 20 years ago. So what, what did you guys do in the beginning? Uh, when we started the company, we, uh, the original idea was we were, um, we knew that companies were tracking photocopies, but not prints. And so law firms that were charging back for photocopies weren't charging back for prints. And, um, sorry, what's the difference between a print and a photocopy? Oh, sorry. Uh, photocopy is laying paper on glass. Yeah. And, yeah. uh, and it coming out the other side, whereas printing is actually pressing print on your, on your workstation and the okay. paper coming out of your printer. Um, yeah, so we, we started out thinking about that and built a program around that. I was running another company at the time um, that was a pure uh, service technology business built around those notes, and it was more uh, getting paid per the, by the hour, and I was really looking for a product that would essentially sell while I was sleeping. Okay, and so that, you're, 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 I thought at one point you were actually selling photocopiers and printers. No, Is that, no? no. Okay, I got they that. Were our, the, the people that sell them are our customers or were our customers. Okay, and so what did you sell them in the beginning? Well, what we would do is we would sell through office equipment dealers to their law firm, architect, engineer, school clients, anybody that wanted to charge their customers or users for printing. And, um, and, and there was a fairly large base for that. And there weren't a lot of people out there. But what did you sell them? What physically? Oh, sorry. We sold them software that would sit on the workstation 
um, and watch for every time somebody clicked on print. And then it would collect all of the information around that. And in many cases, it would ask them for more information about who the client was or who the student was or to use um, access cards and those sorts of things. Oh, so cool. So if I'm a law firm and I get paid for every time I hit print, it'll prompt me and say, Hey, is this for a client and which client? And so then, then that goes onto the docket for that client and the client gets the bill for like six photocopies at 12 cents or whatever. Exactly. That's awesome. That's crazy that there's a business. Model. And it, was a, it was a fairly large business just there. Uh, it sort of died down over the years and um, a little bit. And we started what we what really did make the company interesting and uh, valuable is we started remotely monitoring printers through a software product that would sit at a customer site and uh, the office equipment dealers would pay us to get into a portal to re- to see their printers online. So where they used to get a call from their customers and say, um, that say, hey, we're out of toner or the copier's broken, the software that we built would monitor those printers and we did it worldwide and it would just get that information to them through a portal. Um, and so it, it saved them an enormous amount of time and money of phone calls, people having to send in the number of pages that they had done. And, uh, that's, that's what really was the value of the software at the end. So if I'm a Rico dealer or a Xerox dealer or an HP dealer, I sell photocopies, right? And, yeah. and I want to know when my law firm's having a problem with their photocopy before they call me. Correct. Cause you, and that, and that helps them build value into their relationship. Got it. And right. your software would help them do that. Yeah. And it also, so for the most part, the uh, photocopier dealers out in the world, they make money off of the toner and off of the pages going through the machine. And so uh, this would be a proactive way for that to get right into their accounting systems. And we tell them when it needed service. And we started, of course, as the software got more robust, it would send out service calls and, uh, and send out toner automatically and Whole bunch of things like that. So your customer was the photocopier dealer. I know they don't like calling yeah. themselves photocopier dealers, but for intents and purposes, for I people. think they do. I think they're okay. 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 So the, the Rico dealer or the, the yeah. you know, et cetera. Got it. Okay. So this business is something that grows. Tell me, was there something that, that triggered you to want to sell it? Um, a couple of things. One was, uh, I had, uh, and I think a lot of people think this way, I was, uh, I was 20 years in or getting close to 20 years in. Uh, I have another company that, um, uh, that was uh, growing out of the, it was in the print hot space. I actually had a few other companies running at different times, but this one was growing pretty quickly. Uh, it was interesting to me, but also um, there, I, I felt that for my team that had been with me for a long time, there weren't a lot of opportunities for growth in there and that there were, that there were people, the industry was very much changing. A lot of the copier dealers were getting bought up by other copier dealers and it was time for a change. So, um, yeah, it, it was a time for a change for me, but also for the company to be able to thrive and survive. How many employees did you have at that time? Um, when we sold, we were 43 people. So you had four in North America. Now we had, uh, distributors that were exclusive to us around the world. So there were another probably 30 people in the, in the distributorships around the world that we oversaw. Got it. But, but when you thought about 
you know, reaching that 20 year point where you're like, you know, a lot of the, my people are, are, are limited in terms of their opportunities. It was this, this kind of group of core group of 40 or so that you felt weren't growing yeah. as much as you'd hoped. Yeah, there was the limitation for those people. The, uh, the fact that I had been doing it for 20 years and it was the longest that I had ever done. And I, and I just felt that it was time for, um, I felt that it was time because we were doing really well at the time as well. And so, you know, when you're, um, uh, when everything's going your way, that's not a bad time to start looking. Yeah. Yeah. What, what, what metrics would you, would you point to, uh, to determine doing really well? Like what, 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 what does that mean? Yeah. So for us, we had a, we had a pretty large group of KPIs, but me personally, uh, the KPIs that were interesting were, um, the sheer amount of, um, off equipment dealers that were paying a subscription, the amount of printers that were on the system. We were close to 2 million printers around the world. Um, and there were, uh, and that was at, at almost 150,000 end user customer sites. And so we were starting to see that the data that we were getting and the richness of the, of the information, there was some value there that we didn't really know how to lo- unlock either. And that was, that was frustrating to us, but the, it was growing. We were growing devices by 24, 25% a year, uh, in some cases even more, and uh, customer base about the same. And so that it just was really feeling like it was taking off. How did you finance the business? What was the, did you have investors or? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a bootstrap guy. So uh, I think my parents and a bunch of my friends uh, chipped in about $75,000 altogether. And uh, so I think that's, I think that's what we raised and every company I've had since then. And there's been, a few in between that have done all right. I've never really raised money. So I've done, I think it's, I think it's more my fear and not understanding of it than, um, than being a true bootstrapper, but I'm not sure. And as, as, as the business grew and you started to make money and so forth, did you pay, pay off or buy those people out or did they hold that equity all the way through to the end? They held it all the way through to the end. We paid, um, we paid dividends every month for, uh, all the months we were around other than 18. So it was a, it was a good, it was a good investment for everybody, even though, you know, the average investment was 1500 bucks, but still. <laughs> yeah. 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 For sure. So you got to a point 20 years in when you thought, and things were going well, that this would be the ideal time. This is an interesting thing because for a lot of business owners, that would be very very counterintuitive, right? Like this thing's yeah. like, you got a tiger between the, what is that expression? Tiger between the tail, you know, the thing is growing. It's probably, you know, what, how did you have the discipline to decide to sell it at that point? Where does that come from? Well, um, it, it was in my mind, which was nice. Uh, but I, I, um, so I mentioned to you before we spoke that I'm in two business groups, one of them called EO and another one called YPO. Uh, EO was offering, or YPO was offering a, uh, uh, a course called My Deal. And essentially it was a year long course learning about buying and selling companies. Now we had acquired a company the year before um, and done pretty well off of the acquisition. It was an interesting acquisition. And so um, really this course was about learning how to buy better, but also how to sell better. And, hmm. and a lot of the, uh, 
the things that we learned about valuation and um, investment banks and those sorts of things were um, you're better off to sell when it's high. And mm-hmm. I was already thinking that maybe I went into the course more thinking I would be acquiring more companies, but by the end of it, it, it was pretty clear to me that it was time for us to, uh, to find a buyer. Got it. Got it. And, and you mentioned that again, before we hit record here, that, that you did some things to get the business ready to sell. Maybe, maybe you can touch on some of those. Yeah. Um, so the first thing we did, and it was, uh, it was born out of, um, <clears throat> more born out of desperation, which is interesting. We, um, uh, as we were growing over the years, we had one big customer and that one big customer, uh, was one of the photocopier manufacturers and, um, we were doing really well with them until we weren't, uh, they, they bought another company that was sizable for them in North America. And it really did send them into, uh, they didn't stop buying from us, but, uh, they, we became not important in the grand scheme of things. Why was the the technology no longer interesting to them or, or is it valuable to them? Yeah, it wasn't really that. It was more that they were that they became unfocused on us because we still were very very small for them, and the and the acquisition that they made was a very tough one. But a lot of the technical people from the acquisition moved into taking care of us and just didn't know us as well, and so our sales dropped dramatically in about 2010. Uh, they dropped. What's dramatically? So with Rico, we were doing um, 600,000 a month and we went down to 60,000 a month in less than 10 months. And so uh, it was painful and we weren't sure. And so this is one of these uh, rising Phoenix rising stories, but we weren't sure how we were going to survive. And um, uh, but what was interesting about it, and maybe this is where um, I like the pressure of change and things like that. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs do, Um, but we really did decide that as we were going to rebuild this, that we wanted to have a recurring revenue model and we didn't want to have, um, we didn't want to have one big customer. We wanted to have several subscription. How much of your, how much of your revenue did Rico represent at the time they were 600,000 and that was 70%, 70% of your revenue. So one customer, and and this isn't the Rico dealers. This is Rico head office that that's driving that. Yeah. So Rico head office paid us, but it was through the dealers and their their network, but um, it, it was more their direct it was more of their direct clients. And so, you know, uh, while that happened, and, and again, as much as it, as it hurt us, Rico was a really good customer of ours, and they just lost focus. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but it gave us this, this drive to rebuild as a fully recurring revenue company and fully subscription company. And so that's where we came up with the idea to charge office equipment dealers subscriptions. And office equipment dealers are very much entrepreneurs too, and so they were like us. They were much more understandable uh, and relatable, and uh, we knew that we could offer them something with value. So, um, in January 2012, we actually, um, uh, sorry, uh, March 2012, we actually started to build this subscription system where the the dealers would pay us a subscription for this this um, uh, service that they could use to monitor printers. And it did grow. It actually grew fairly quickly. So it was good timing as usual things are. Uh, but it also, 
getting back to the question, it was very much our desire back then. We never thought that we would keep print audit forever. Uh, so it was very much our desire to build a company where um, potentially our revenue is the multiple that we would get when we sold instead of our EBITDA. And uh, that was a big part of our goal when we restructured. And I learned that at a, uh, at a scaling up summit about the, uh, how revenue is treated in a uh, recurring revenue company. Great, great. So you're focused on recurring revenue. Were you able to replace the the 600 grand with these small little guys or did you ever get back to 600 grand in recurring revenue? Yeah. So we never did with Rico. Um, Rico ended up being about 4% of our revenue overall. And so, uh, but uh, during the time while we were building, um, they were still a significant piece of our revenue. So we were able to trade it off. It was some, it was some really, really tough years, but we could see that it was working. And actually, you know, when you're, when you're doing your yearly strategic planning, when we do that every year, our big, hairy, audacious goal was to get to $1 of profitability. And that for us was profitability was our recurring revenue. So the money coming in every month guaranteed was $1 more than our expenses. And, uh, and, uh, so we had also, uh, I'm, I'm pretty good. I'm a big cash saver. So we had a fair amount of cash. We did had to have to, um, uh, we ended up letting go, um, in December, 2011, we ended up letting go half of our staff, which was probably the toughest thing that I've done, but I got to give kudos again to this EO community. Uh, at that time I live in Calgary, Canada. EO was everybody in Calgary was doing great. And we managed to get, everybody i sent out everybody's resumes got them all jobs and everybody got jobs within five or six months and uh so that was um that was a big testament to the community that i have so so let me make sure i get the arc of the story right so yeah sorry so your your gangbusters rico's this huge juggernaut 70 percent of your revenue 600 grand a month in revenue and all of a sudden things go pear-shaped they drop dramatically down to 60 grand you have a, a sort of an epiphany that you don't want to be beholden to any one customer anymore. You want diversity among your customers and you want to go to subscription model. Part of that though is a huge change to the company and you've got to let some staff go and you come up with the, the goal as a team that this, this big hairy audacious goal is to get to a point where your recurring revenue at least, uh, you know, matches the, the, uh, the costs associated with running the company day to day. Correct. Yeah. Have I got that, that arc about right? You've got that arc perfectly. Okay. And it was tough. It was a lot of work, but, um, it was, it was, uh, it did work out. So some people listening will say, well, why does this guy want like just $1 of profitability? Why, why would that be the goal and not 20% profit margins or something like that? Like what was so meaningful about the, the you know, $1 of profitability and why yeah, not a loftier goal, I guess. Yeah, so the loftier goal did come after we got that, but um, uh, really the one dollar uh, and and it's funny because we drove the whole company. We used to call it Infinity. So once we're uh, we called it the Infinite Company. So once we've got that one dollar more than our expenses, then the company just goes on. We don't really need cash. We don't need anything. Uh, the company can continue that way. And in fact, when we um, the, our last group of products, we called them print audit infinite. And, uh, and so, you know, when you think about a theme and, and moving forward and getting everybody focused on it, that was what we would think about was infinity. And, uh, so it, even though maybe a dollar isn't lofty, but infinity is. 
Yeah, for sure. Got it. Okay. So the first thing you did was remake the business model into this recurring revenue uh, juggernaut. Next, there was something else you did, which was, I think, more internally. Maybe talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So we, um, we really analyzed the, um, because we were trying to build a company that was, uh, was going to be very valuable. Uh, so we an- analyzed the value drivers, uh, especially for purchasers and acquirers of recurring revenue companies. And one of the things that, um, that was obvious and it was obvious to obvious to us as well, but, um, uh, we found that, uh, we thought that retention was going to be way more, exp- way more important than sales. And so we actually had, uh, we 80 20 we aligned the entire company 80 percent of the company and the people and the resources were built towards retention so once we that hard battle of getting a customer on because nobody had ever paid for a subscription like this before we wanted to make sure that we kept them and so um you know, there were, we, we also put some interesting, um, hooks into how we kept them and, uh, um, and, and just thinking about what the product did for them and their customers. But, um, yeah, it was 80, 20 towards retention. And so what does that mean? Very, 20, give, give me the example of how you would spend money 80% towards retention, 20% towards acquisition. I'm assuming, or what was the other 20%? Yeah. So, um, mostly it was around sales and marketing and, uh, actual development. And so our development was driven by the features of our current customers mm-hmm. and, uh, with 20% new, new stuff. And it was very well measured 20% new stuff from customers that said they'd come on with them if they, if we did this or did that. Um, the, out of the 40 people, 80% of them were actually under a retention director. And so one, one person in the company was in charge of 80% of the company. Um, and, and our sales team was actually very small. And, um, just before we sold, our plan was because we had retention down to, down to a science, we were actually going to flip that in, in 2019 and 2020, uh, to start becoming a sales engine if we couldn't sell the company. And so we were going to move it around because we really figured out retention. We had somewhere around a 99.5% retention rate of the customers that came on. And so, um, but that really drives, that drives value is your retention rates and how long the lifetime value of customers. And it's interesting when you look at lifetime value, uh, most people try and put a number on it, but if they've been with you from the beginning to the end, so let's say six, seven years, then that's your lifetime value. And every day it gets longer. Uh, I don't think every private equity firm in the world would agree with me, but nonetheless, that's, uh, it is true. Yeah, for sure. So what was the, you mentioned the third thing was this sort of personal odyssey of education to learn right. about what, yeah. Tell me more about that. I mean, it was a year long course, but is, was there, there one highlight that stood out for you that, that was a bit of an epiphany? I mean, you're, you're obviously a pretty knowledgeable, I'm a very knowledgeable guy. You've been around the block, you've got lots of businesses. So I'm assuming your level to be impressed with information is relatively high. So what, what, what sort of was an aha for you? Um, we did a, some pretty serious exercises around valuing our own companies uh, through this. And um, the aha for me was uh, the value of this company today is, um, is enough to set me up for life and a lot of my employees and executives for life. And so um, 
I guess, and that sounds that sounds kind of greedy because it it's, it starts with money and it doesn't always end with money. But uh, uh, I was surprised at where the value could have been for the company and where it was at the company. Uh, I really didn't think it was that high, and it turned out that it was. So, so what uh, was the what was the valuation methodology that you were learning about? Um, well, so we would look at, and again, I mentioned the data piece. Remember I mentioned the data piece earlier. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of company. There's a lot of companies in the world and it's still happening right now where data from massive amounts of data, like we were getting uh, 4 million pieces of information from printers around the world every hour into our system. Massive pieces of data were actually valued um, much higher sometimes than, than IP. And Hmm. so, um, that was a real value booster for us. Um, but also when we looked at, they had an interesting competitive matrix and, and, and again, I I don't know how much of this is proprietary, but I I think uh, they had an interesting competitive matrix where we could, um, relatively put our value against the value of competitors that might be buying us larger competitors or, and that's what did happen. A larger competitor did come and buy us. And so strategic values were pretty high for us as well. And, um, uh, and, and so I, I can't remember the exact mechanics, John, but it did come out to when we were looking at it and this was run by investment bankers saying, this is how we'll present you or how you would be presented to potential buyers when you go out into the world. And, um, it was just much higher than a multiple of, of EBITDA that I was even thinking, even though I was trying to get a multiple of revenue, I never really believed it, but, uh, it was just much higher than what I thought. And so, so and I couldn't see in the future because when I think about my industry, um, I, I couldn't see in the future that because I do believe that people are printing less. And uh, it, it seemed to me that we might be getting to a peak in the industry for us as well. And so that might be back to your counterintuitive is there was an intuition that we might be hitting a peak in the industry and that somebody bigger needs to come in and diversify Right. Because if you just pull back the layers and sort of go back to 30,000 feet, I mean, people aren't printing as much as they used to, even though we have law firms and so forth, like that's just the reality, right? So that's where all of our money came from. We didn't have a diversification at that point. So interesting. So what did you going through this course? What did you come to learn companies like yours were valued at as a multiple of revenue? I'm assuming it was a multiple of revenue. So what what was the range you were, you were starting to, to start to come to realize? You know, it was it was kind of all over the place because we were in a pretty niche industry, and so um, we were seeing multiples of revenue of uh, three to five times. Of a pretty, wow! Pretty uh, long-standing companies and ones that had, uh, or you know, really big multiples of EBITDA as well. So you're looking at twelve to twenty. 20 times EBITDA. And so, um, and so the numbers were big and that's, a, that's another piece of this uh, going back to the non-intuitive is uh, the investment bankers who were running this course, they were saying, Hey, this is also probably the frothiest time in our history for valuations that we've ever seen for valuations and businesses being sold. So that's another tick in the, should we be getting out now column, right? Is that maybe we'll put another five years in and grow like crazy, but we won't, but the multiple will end up being the same because the market's gone down. 
Well, the, the multiple actually might go down. The overall value may Sorry, stay the same. The multiple yeah. might go down and the value it stays the same. That's exactly Yeah, right. so you could put in five years of work and, and, and not get a dollar more for your company. Right, and be a much more successful company, but still it's not, it, it was what it was worth at the end because we always did plan to sell. This wasn't going to be a lifestyle company. So you're, you're, think, you're seeing numbers, like huge numbers, like three times revenue, four or five times revenue. And starting to think, okay, this, this is worth, uh, a truckload. What was your next step? Did you, did you start selling it on your own? Did you hire some representation? You mentioned there was an investment banker involved. Maybe talk about that. Yeah. So, um, out of, out of the class and I don't know about the other fellows and, and ladies in the class. Uh, but I got to, I got along very well with the guy that was running it. He has an investment bank down in Cincinnati, uh, and, uh, it's called Ark Malibu. Um, we were on a, actually on a little bit on the small, small side for him. So he introduced me to a guy in Canada, uh, Basil Peters from exits and between Basil and Peter down in Cincinnati, we started to build. So I woke up, uh, June 16th, 20, um, 2018, uh, which happens to be my birthday and said, okay, I'm going to do this. And, uh, and that was, that was it. So I talked, we talked to the executive team at print audit and, um, they were really the only ones that knew at the time. And then I went to Basil and Peter, uh, and, um, said, let's, let's put this together. And they agreed to help me through it, which was great. And, uh, so hired them, and we were in the process of creating what's called a, you know, going through building our, um, uh, building our data room and doing the due diligence and all the things that are one thing about this course that I thought, and I would suggest this to every entrepreneur is, uh, the due diligence piece and getting yourself ready and having the I's dotted and T's crossed is incredibly difficult. And it's a full-time job for the CEO. And so the company has to be kind of able to run beneath you. But if the company's running beneath you, that adds value as well. Believe mm. it or not, that uh, you're not the key person. And that uh, for sure. by, the time, yeah. by the time I left or by the time we sold, I didn't know most of our customers. I wasn't responsible for a dime of sales and uh, retention. And I was really the strategy an execution person with um so that did work out well for me and i was at a point where i could sell not everybody in our group was at that point but i had because of eo and the learnings that i'd had i quickly i'd been moving myself into that position anyway because i had another company and um anyway so we um uh, the, the due diligence and the getting the data room ready and all those sorts of things happened. And, uh, we just happened to get a call from the eventual buyer for us as we were building this. Hmm. And, um, I, I think from that point, this is where I say the rest is history because the actual mechanics are under NDA. Yeah. yeah I think your, your voice dropped a little bit there. You said the actual mechanics of it are under NDA. Around NDA um, yeah. Now, did you, did you, so you had an inbound offer. I think people would be curious to know, were you, did you continue to use the investment banking firm? Because in, in essence, you got the deal at that point, or did you, did you separate from those guys or how did you kind of work that? 
Yeah, great question. So um, uh, personal relationship, we kept on moving. And I've got to say that so I didn't get to see their negotiating prowess. And uh, though we did negotiate, obviously, the offer up front, they were very much involved in that. And that was uh, that was great. But where I got to say, I got the most value on the deal. And I think it was worth everything that we paid them was uh, the help that we had during the due diligence. And so the company that bought us was was pretty massive. And uh, they acquire companies. That's what they do. It's one of their main thrusts. And so we were presented with a due diligence list of 2,000 plus items or somewhere around there. And uh, that's when the investment banks both jumped in with both feet and helped us to organize. They organized my people. Uh, They got everybody. They were very um, they were great with the confidentiality, but they they were sort of the pipeline and the management for getting the due diligence items. And I've got to say, I think because of them, we were much faster uh, in um, getting the data and being able to go through it with the buyer than uh, probably they've seen before. And we were probably smaller than some of the guys they bought before. What was the strategic value? Like, why, why did they want to buy you guys? Um, well, we were, uh, so they had the, they had bought the number one and the number three companies in this device management. So that, that product that I was talking about, and we had these other product sets that they were very interested in. Um, and so, you know, there was a pretty big strategic value for them. Um, uh, but, um, uh, and so it was, it was product IP, that data set, of course, is very valuable. And, um, uh, and, and essentially, once they bought us, they, at least in North America, they own the market and they got access to all these other markets around the world that we were being really successful in. So they were able to, I suspect, their plan is to sell other their stuff to our other uh, customers around the world. So kind of, in fact, lots of kind of strategic uh, reasons to buy you guys, you know, the product, the customers and so forth. Yeah. And that's what, I mean, if you're looking for a sale, a strategic sale is always the best. And um, so we were quite happy. These, these were the right guys to buy us most, most definitely. And they were, they were fantastic all the way through the process. Um, okay. So, and again, this may be getting into stuff you can't talk about um, due to the NDA. Um, but I think listeners would want to know how did their offer compare with what your expectations were? Did, did you, were you pleasantly surprised, underwhelmed? Like, did you, did you feel fair value was being exchanged? Any kind of qualitative description? Yeah, it's interesting. So let me, uh, maybe the way to do it is our banker in the U S thought it was too low and our banker in Canada thought it was too high. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, so I think at the end of the day, that's, uh, it came out pretty fair. Okay. Got it. So it was, it was kind of in the range, presumably between those two guys. Yeah. Yeah. Got, Got it. Got it. Excellent. Um, how did you, how did you decide to tell your employees that you were selling the company? That's a great one. Um, hmm. uh, so because of the nature of who was buying us in the industry and everybody knows everybody, uh, we had agreed with the buyer that it needed to be very confidential. And so we could only read in a few people. Um, and, uh, there were very few, um, 
It's an interesting one. I, and I think that was the right thing to do. But I, I do think that when it was, when we finally told the staff when the deal was done, and we told the majority of the staff when the deal was done, so the buyer came up and it was it was a big celebration. And uh, but I, th- I think a lot of people, because of how close the company was and how transparent we had been before, I think there was probably some hurt feelings on that or just surprise. Um but uh, it, it was done in conjunction with the buyer, and it was a big piece that we spent a lot of time with. The buyer had a very large PR marketing uh, arm that was very interested in making sure that they that we went along their uh, lines of doing this, and it, and it turns out it was the lines. And I think that um, the way they do that probably is somewhat proprietary, so I can't talk about that overly, but um, we told the majority of the staff when the deal was done and they were able to announce with us. So maybe about a week after the deal was done altogether. And, and what, what was in it for the rank and file staff member, the, the, the junior employee? Did they benefit in any way or what was their, how did you pitch it to them as a good thing? Yeah, um, well, I think all of them knew who these people were. And so uh, we pitched it as, as opportunity and uh, certainly opportunity that Printata couldn't have given them. So you're talking about going from uh, 40 to 50 employees to two to 3000 employees. And so, uh, and a lot of, we were very good at hiring at Printaudit. And uh, so these were really, and are really smart people that were going to impress a larger organization, just had an opportunity to uh, grow and, but the other side of it was because the people were so great at print audit, I never really felt like, uh, they were at risk. Um, and because people knew how well we hired and that they, they had built, we spent a lot of time and effort on education and just growing the person. And, um, so I, I always felt good about the people. It might be tough. It's changed. But I also felt that uh, if they didn't like the change, they had so many opportunities in front of them. And as it's turned out, it's true. Would you do anything if you had a mulligan and you could do it over again? Would, would you do anything differently in, in the way you, ha- you handled your employees in the process? I probably would, but I got to tell you that uh, I think that's probably under NDA. And okay. So uh, I can't I can't go into details. There is maybe one thing that I would have uh, that I would have done differently, but um, it's not significant enough that uh, that it would blow your listeners away. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Got it. Tell me about what it was like to 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 circle back to those early investors with the proceeds of their investment. Yeah, it was great. Um, most of them had been aware for, uh, even some of them before the, uh, the, the staff, which was maybe that's a little bit of one of my, again, the staff not knowing was always tough for me because I did have a group of my friends that were investors that knew about it even before some of the staff. So uh, that was very much against my transparency. It was the right thing to do because customers would have panicked. The industry would have had, they just needed to be given it in a package in the proper way. Um, so uh, getting back to the question was great. We, uh, most of them came by my house to get their checks and uh, because we did hand out good old fashioned checks and um, uh, it was a long ride, but everybody was pretty happy. And uh, one guy bought a house, which was nice. Another guy 
uh, went on a went on a great vacation with his family. Yeah, so I if heard I, really good stories. About if I'd invested fifteen hundred dollars in print audit, what would my check have been? Uh, lots, <laughs> lots more than fifteen hundred bucks. <laughs> Five zeros, six zeros, yeah, seven yeah. zeros. I can't even come up with it, <laughs> but it was <laughs> it was lots more than. 1500. It was a good deal. It was a good deal. Yeah, and uh, you congratulations. Know, it was, uh, it was, it was nice to do that. And, uh, these really are my friends. Unfortunately, my parents were both invested there, but they were both gone before it was done. Oh, that's a so, shame. Uh, they would so have enjoyed my, my sister's got the check. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Um, well, that's good. What, tell me what life has been like for you now that you are exited from print audit. Well, I, I mentioned that I've got a, um, uh, another company. So it, it is a question being an EOer and a lot of EOers. This is the, the thing that they want to do is what are you doing now or how come you're working and those sorts of things. Um, I don't think um, the drive was never really for me to not work. Uh, I had another company that I've been building for quite a while and I've got a fantastic operator, which is great. A guy named uh, Scott, who is the president of the company and um, it's called payroll rewards. And so I'm very much involved in that now. And what it is, is we take entrepreneurs, founders, owners, uh, we take their payroll, run it through Amex. Uh, American Express is our exclusive partner in the U.S. for this. And we get the membership rewards for their payroll. Wow, and, uh, that's a great deal. <laughs> it's a great deal. And it's been a lot of fun. It's growing like crazy. Uh, and, you know. What's, sorry, what's the name of the company? Payroll Rewards. Payroll Rewards. We'll have to check that out. Uh, yeah. Payrollrewards.com, I'm guessing. Yeah, that's exactly right. Awesome. Uh, as you can tell, I named my companies what they do. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's easy to keep them focused. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Print audit and payroll rewards. Well, listen, John, it's a, uh, it's been a tremendous pleasure to, uh, to get to know you. Thank you for sharing your story with our guys, our listeners. Um, I guess for people to, to learn more, it's, it's probably best to send them to payroll rewards. Is there anywhere else that yeah. you'd send them to if, uh, or, or should we just point them to that website? Uh, yeah. So payrollrewards.com is a great one. Uh, and I'm all about, I think you're going to put my contact information up, right? Happy to, if, if you're, yeah. if you allow us to, yep. Yeah. You're probably on LinkedIn, I'm guessing as well. I am on LinkedIn. I'm not sure awesome. that my profile is kind of, I don't know, embarrasses me. <laughs> <laughs> Good deal. Well, we'll put all that in the show notes. It was great to meet you, Sean. Thank you again. Thanks, John. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.